Please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 in, in your pew Bible. Sorry. That begins on page 61. Page 61 in your pew Bible, Exodus chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's the word of the Lord, and we thank God for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the scriptures, that we might know who you are and what you're like, that we might understand who you've made us to be so that we might live our lives in ways that glorify and honor you by faith in what you have revealed. Lord, we pray that you would help us, guide us, strengthen us. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your order of worship to the sermon notes, you'll see that while well, I've read the whole 21 verses here that we're focusing today specifically on this 13th verse. It says very plainly, you shall not murder. 
you shall not murder. And we've been seeing how this, as well as all of these commandments or words from God, are predicated on the reality of God's already rescuing his people out of these very sins, out of our slavery to sin, as that was exemplified in their slavery to Egypt and to Pharaoh, a, a king like the other kings of this earth that sought to rule them and gain from them to his advantage, as opposed to God, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, and who reigns, and ser- reigns over us to serve us and to care for us in doing what he has called us to do, namely, to honor his name throughout all of the earth. And so as we approach these commandments, we see in the text how the people are, the, their whole demeanor is fearful, is, is keeping a distance. When these commandments are given for the very purpose that we might draw near to him. Do you, do you hear that contrast of their fear and and all that, that goes with that, rather than a desire for us to, to know God, to, to lean into. And maybe that's where you are this morning, that you hear, oh, he's preaching on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Couldn't I have come on a Sunday when they were in Galatians or Ephesians or something and heard about grace? But, beloved, don't miss that these words, these commandments are grace that he is telling us far more than simply that we're not to murder one another. But he's helping us to understand that he alone is the giver of life. And so our view of one another, our view of human life, ought to be one of awe and and wonder. I I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that we have never actually seen a mere mortal. In, in all the human beings that we see are made in the image of God. We are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we are those that the angels look at with absolute mystification. What? What? That's, they're amazing, the angels say about human beings. And yet, when we're trying to get home on Route 4 and, and someone's driving 10 minutes under the speed limit and there's no way to get around them, we, we can't stand them. <laughs> oh, oh you've, you've got such important things to do that Two more minutes or five more minutes is really that devastating. Why is it? Well, God tells us in his word that it's that way because, as he warned us, sin brings death. Always. And perhaps there's nothing that that reveals that more graphically Then shortly after the fall, how 
Cain and Abel are presented to us in Genesis. And they're not simply out doing their own thing. It, it records for us a scene where they as brothers are, are coming to God and giving him sacrifices. They're, they're honoring him. They're worshiping him. They're like upstanding members of First Congregational Church Woodstock. Right? On, on Sunday morning, here in their Sunday best. And yet the two brothers are not in the same place. They're both doing what looks like righteous things. But Abel's sacrifice is, is accepted and Cain's is not. And in just bang, 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 a short progression in the narr uh, narrative, we, we have God warning Cain, warning him to not hate his brother, but to be vigilant. Let's just turn there. Turn with me in, your, in the, the Bible to Genesis chapter 4. This is uh, from verse... 3. Genesis 4, 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Now catch this. He's just murdered his brother. God comes and asks him, where is your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. That phrase, am I my brother's keeper, is, is to show the, the twistedness of, of Cain. Because yes, he is. God has created us to be our brother's keeper. But far from keeping his brother safe, he has murdered his brother. And so in this command, you shall not murder, we find as we have with the other commands that it's, it's about far more than just that particular behavior. But this is a summary of what God wants us to have as a way of everything that we say and do and even think about our brother. And the first time that, that, 
there's a recorded murder, we find all of those aspects in Cain. Right? That he's angry. That he speaks to his brother in that anger and that he kills his brother, taking his life wrongly. And so we, we find in that all of these components and that God is dealing with all of that as we see Jesus talking about this same command in the Sermon on the Mount and the way that he deals with all three of those things, our thoughts about one another, our, our words to one another, as well as our actions. So the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is how God prohibits wrongful taking of human life. And we need to unpack that a little bit because you may have noticed even in reading the text, you shall not murder. That's, that's what the ESV, which is the Pew Bible, has. Does, does anybody have a King James version here with you? What is it? Thou shalt not kill. So which is it? Kill or murder? Right? It, there's a difference between those two words, right? And and part of the difficulty in translating it is because there's not range of meaning only in English, but also in all the languages. And so this prohibition against murder, as the text has it here, or kill in some translations, is, is getting at this range of meaning for Rishak, uh, um, uh, the, the Hebrew word for murder that's, that's used here. And it's important that we understand what that meaning is as we seek to follow God's commandments and, and do that, or not do what he prohibits. He's prohibiting here the wrongful or unlawful taking of human life. Risak, this, this Hebrew word, is never used for the killing of livestock or other animals. It's, it's specific to the taking of human life. But think for a moment just in terms of the way that we think of those sorts of things, even in English, right? We have lots of different words like murder, but that's different from manslaughter. And that's different altogether from negligent homicide. While they're, they're different, they all end up with a corpse. But, but what's the intention? What are the, the, the other parameters and the, and the things having to do with that? So the, the reality is, is that the Hebrew term that's used here has a range of meaning that is uh, in, in involving several of these things. And so think of it in this way, in that it's, it is broader than just murder is, but it is, it is uh, more narrow than to kill. So the, word that's, the Hebrew word that's used here would involve murder, and manslaughter and negligent homicide. But it would not involve killing an animal. And it, it wouldn't involve things like self-defense or uh, 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 killing in just war. The, the, the range of meaning there has to do with these sorts of things of the, the unlawful taking of human life. And, and as I've said, the, the command is specific to human life, but it's even more than that in that it's connected with this idea of blood. The scripture tells us again and again that the life is in the blood. We, we hear that in Leviticus chapter 17. It says, if any one of the house of Israel or one of the strangers who sojourn among them 
eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood. So this is a, a legislation in Leviticus having to do with the, the civil law of Israel, those things that are clean and unclean and what you can and cannot eat and those sorts of things. But connected to that is that God has always had his people to when you slaughter an animal for food that you would drain the blood before eating. Why? Well, that's connected with what God is showing. He's, he's putting there in front of us the reality that, that blood and blood guilt are specific things tied to and connected to the spilling or shedding of someone's blood. And that God not only talks about blood and blood guilt, but he also talks about how the blood of his people, the blood of his saints, is particularly significant to them to him as God. In Psalm 72, it says this, for he, that is God, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So all throughout the Old Testament, we find these references to the blood of his people the blood of human beings, and particularly the, the role of the blood in sacrifice, where the, the priest would not only slaughter the animal to be sacrificed and then offer it on the altar, but would often sprinkle the people with that sacrificial animal's blood and sprinkle the, the altar or the, the Holy of Holies with that, that blood. And, and that goes back to the blood covenant of God and his people that, that Exodus 20 is helping us to understand. That, that these words, these 10 words, are not just commands for people to try to be better. They're covenant stipulations. They are the requirements of God's people who have already been made to be God's people. They don't get into the family of God through these commands and, and obedience to them. But once you are members of God's family by faith, then you are to keep these commands as a way of honoring God and demonstrating that he is holy. And so in all of these things, he, he talks about the blood and its particular importance. And, and I have to be frank, a lot of times growing up, reading through the Old Testament, it just seemed like the Old Testament was gory. Have you ever had that feeling? Like there's blood everywhere. I remember in, in our church in, in Maine, we had a, a, a new family coming to the church, and they didn't have any church background. They didn't, they didn't know the Bible stories of the Old Testament or any of those things, and, and they started coming to our church because a friend had invited them. That's, by the way, always a, a good idea, right? You, you invite somebody who's not familiar and, and come with them, and, and, and so they start learning. But I remember this couple coming to me, and like they were almost white as a sheet uh, and, and almost trembling, right? And, and the, the dad was trying to, you know, be, you know, careful, but, but he's like, um, we, we kind of need to talk to you as the pastor. Uh, and I'm so, great, well, how can I help? He said, well, last Sunday after church, we, we were having lunch and they had little kids. And, and so they were talking to their little kids about what they learned in Sunday school. And the lesson that particular Sunday was, was on the Passover. Remember when the people were in Egypt 
And God had brought these ten plagues to reveal that he is the Lord and he's the true king, not Pharaoh, and that God's greater than all the Egyptian gods and all those things and goes through those ten plagues. And the last plague, remember, was the, the death of the firstborn. And, and so God commanded his people to sacrifice a Passover lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and to smear it over the doorposts. And then when the, the angel of death came by, it would pass over those homes in which the blood of the lamb was... Well, many of us know that story so well that you know, we don't even blink of, well, yeah, of course, that's Passover. But, but for a family that's not used to any of the Old Testament Bible stories, and they brought their little kids here to, to Sunday school, and they come home, what did you learn in Sunday school? Well, they were killing this lamb and then, and then they smeared the blood all over the house. So there was blood everywhere. And the neighbor's kids were dying left and right, but, but not the Israelite kids. And so this family's like, whoa, what have we come to, right? Have, have you ever thought about that? It's, and God doesn't give us those stories, you know, because he was writing them in October and thinking of Halloween. Right? These are not gory in, in that sense. The whole point of those things is to reveal to us the true horror. Is not ghosts and goblins or other made-up things. The horror that should absolutely terrify us is how sinful we are and how incredibly horrific sin is. And, and that again and again in the scripture, God communicates things like the wages of sin is death. And that the only way to deal with death, the only way to address our utter sinfulness is through death is through the shedding of blood. But we'll get more to that later. And again, we think of this as, you know, kind of like voodoo, right? It's, it's you know, all this gore and this the, uh, sacrifices and, and those kinds of things. But, but actually, in our modern world, we've, we've found that there's a whole lot of truth to this that, that they didn't even know yet. How many of you have watched shows on... on uh, on crime uh, things, you know, and they, and they have the the uh, the specialist, the the uh, forensic scientist, right? And what it, what it, how does the forensic scientist find the bad guy? Yeah, the DNA in the blood, right? Have you ever seen one of these things where the 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 DNA specialist will will go to the crime scene, right? And they're and they're showing the crime scene, and you and you look at it, and it's you know, there, there's not the body anymore there. Maybe there's still the, the chalk line. But everything's been, you know, mostly cleaned up. And, and the, the forensic scientist goes in, and they've got a black light. Have you seen it? They, they turn on the black light, and boom, like all of a sudden, the room is just alive with, with phosphorescent stuff, right? This is, this is the thing that you never want to do in a public restroom, right, is to turn on a black light. You don't want to know what's there. 
But, but the reality is, is that blood actually testifies. And so these things that we read, like we just read in, in Genesis, about Abel's blood crying out, it, it's, science has actually shown, yeah, that's, the blood testifies. The blood is there to, to say, hey, there was a whole lot of bloodshed in this room. And you can find out who it was. And so God prohibits this wrongful or unlawful taking of human life. And he's, he's established his order in creation to be one in which life begets life. And where we, as his image bearers, have been deputized to kind of be the, the sheriffs to cultivate life. Right? right in the creation mandate, we are to guard and tend the, the garden. We're, we're to, to plow and to, to farm and to, to do things that cultivate life. And that part of that is caring for one another, human lives. Because God alone is the sustainer and giver of life, and, and he's involved and engaged us in that process. So the, the order for us to not murder is not just, well, I've never shot anybody, right? I've wished a lot of people dead, but I've never actually acted on that. Well, no, that's, that's not understanding what he's calling us to. That because he alone is the giver and sustainer of life, that we as his deputies ought to be doing everything in our power to care for and promote human life. It's one of the reasons why the church has historically done things like the, hunger, the food drive. It's, it's not just that I'm not murdering my neighbors, but I'm helping to feed them. I'm, I'm caring for them in the name of Christ. But not only does he prohibit wrongful taking of human life, he also holds us responsible for our neighbors' lives. And again, this is, this is a hard sell in, in New Hampshire and Vermont. Right? I, we're, we're not part of those big cities. We're up here living our own life. Thank you very much. You stay on your land. I'll stay on my land. Everything will be fine. And yet we, we all understand this in a way, and, and, and it squirts out at various different times. I know some of you are dreading the come of, of snow. I've already started seeing pictures on Facebook of, of snow scenes, and several of you have commented like, not yet, don't, don't rush it. We're okay with the fall leaves, but let's not talk about snow yet. But, but one of the things I love about New England is like you, you can have a neighbor that you cuss about all the time that if you come across on the, on the road and they're in a snow uh, uh, bank, Everybody gets out and helps, right? It's like, well, yeah, because if I were in the snowbank, I would want somebody to help me. And, and so there's this kind of camaraderie about those sorts of things. But, but I've also found that, that that camaraderie is very narrowly defined, right? Oh, you're in a snowbank? I'll help you. You want to borrow something? No, no, we're not that close. 
But this way of thinking about our neighbor, about thinking about other human beings, and the way that we speak to them and about them, and the way that we act, God is saying, I am the Lord of those things. You were to obey me not in a, in a narrow bandwidth, but in all of life. And so Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and the zinger was that he was good and a Samaritan because the Jews didn't think any of the Samaritans were good. They, they hated them. And, and so the, the Levite walks by, the rabbi, you know, no, nobody helps him but this hated Samaritan. And, and, and Jesus is turning the knife, is, is, is getting to us to say, if such a one as a Samaritan would do that, how could you as God's people do anything less? And that's not just for them, that's for us now. How could we do any less? God requires us to love one another and to seek one another's welfare. This is what he is getting at. And it's all throughout the law of God, not just that we should not murder, but that we need to be careful in protecting others' lives. Deuteronomy 22 puts it this way. In the midst of all these other things of, of what we're to do and what we're not to do, Deuteronomy 22 says, Now when you build a house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. That is a, a, a railing. Uh, and that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in, in the way even in which you're thinking about your own property and what you do, you're to do that not only with concern for yourself and your own loved ones, but, but in that day and, and culture, the roof was, you know, not like our roofs, the roofs were, were flat and they tended to be like your porch or your balcony. And, and that if you've got a, a porch or balcony, you say, well, I'm smart enough to not, you know, fall off of it. But, but if you have others over, they, they might not know where the limit of, of that is. And, and so it's what John Frame calls this, this theology of carefulness. That, that my view of human life is defined by my knowing who has given that life. And so I don't want to treat with carelessness the things that God has entrusted to us. I saw this one time at a, at a park where there was a, a young family that was playing and, and the, the little kid had come up to his, I'm assuming his dad, and, and the dad just you know handed him something. I don't know that it was necessarily very significant or important or whatever he just you know and I was too far to see exactly what it was but I'll never forget the little boy's face right he he received it from his dad and he's like oh I've been given a treasure right? had nothing to do with the thing that it was it was where it came from who it came from and and so he's he's like coddling it right being very careful my dad gave this to me that human being that's sitting next to you. Your dad gave that to you. Your dad gave her or him to you. And your neighbor. And your crummy boss that you can't stand. 
and, and the in-laws that you don't want to see. Your dad gave him to you. That's, that's how we're to see other people. Because they didn't come from anywhere else. They're God's image bearers that he has placed in your life. And so God holds you and us responsible for their lives, for their welfare. We must not be negligent, and we must instead be careful with these lives that God has entrusted to our care. You see, contrary to Cain's response, we are very much our brother's keepers. The Genesis narrative is showing us this exasperated response to show us the heart that's behind murder. And as the Westminster Larger Catechism goes on to, to explain, and I've got that in your notes as well, to, you, to have you read through that. And it, it talks about both what this command requires and what this command prohibits. And it's connected to all those things of thoughts and words and deeds. And, and so we're not supposed to wrongfully take human life and instead, we're responsible for the care, the nurture, the well-being of, of our neighbors. Well, those are all great to hear, but how? Because the reality is, is that we've all got hearts, apart from Christ, that are just like Cain. And so in the midst of, of all the scriptures, talking about these various different shades of murder, manslaughter, what have you. We find this in the book of Numbers. This is in Numbers chapter 35. It's differentiating some of these finer points of, of homicide and uh, manslaughter and negligent homicide and those kinds of things. And, and there's this provision that God had made for if someone was killed but without intent. It wasn't murder in the first degree, but maybe it was accidental or uh, without malice. And so God sets up this whole elaborate system of what he calls cities of refuge. And just if you're not familiar with this, the idea behind it was that, that if you guys are, are working together and, and you know, your axe head flies off the handle and hits your buddy in, in the head and kills them, Right? that his family would have the responsibility as the instrument of God, as the Lord of justice, to rectify that through your death because you had killed their family member. But God says that if the one who did the killing gets to one of these cities of refuge, that they would be free from that vengeance, that, that the, the family member could not kill them as long as they remained in that city of refuge. 
But let me, let me read some of this and, and give you some of the specifics of what go, is going on. It says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defy the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Okay, I know that's a lot, but let me just focus on a couple of things that are, that are in that. So there's this idea that the blood shed pollutes or defiles the land. And that the whole purpose of the land is for them to dwell with God. And, and so he sets up this, this way of dealing with that through both sacrifices and these cities of, of refuge. But the cities of refuge, you can go to them and, and not be tried and executed, basically, so long as you stay in them, but that God's made provision so that at the death of the high priest, you're then released to be able to return home. And, and then everything's of vengeance is off. It's, it's been resolved with the death of the high priest. And, and a lot of times we read that or we hear that like we do much of the Old Testament. Our eyes glaze over and we're like, well, uh, what is that? But, but if you actually stop and look at this, there's this beautiful picture of Christ here. That God has made an allowance for the taking of human life through his sacrificial system as, as a way of temporarily dealing with that but ultimately pointing forward to Christ. And the bottom line is, is that nothing can deal with, the, with a human death except another human death. And, and that that is tied to the priesthood of God's people. Well, then wonder of wonders, what we, what we find in the New Testament is, is the coming of the great high priest. Not a, not a priest in the line of Aaron that just every year at the Day of Atonement would sacrifice and shed blood for the, for the people's sin that, that God might forbear and, and not blot us out but that that was always pointing towards the high priest. And so Jesus arrives, and he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's the, key, the priest, the anointed one, Messiah. And that in going to the cross, he sacrifices himself as the Lamb of God. And it is Jesus' blood that washes us of sin, and Jesus' death as the high priest that releases us from the temporary city of refuge and allows us to go out now in freedom. Christ was murdered in order to give us eternal life. Do you understand that not even God himself could look upon us and our sin and simply say, it's okay, you're forgiven. But the sin of wrongfully taking human life, which we do in thought and word and action, 
can only be forgiven through the shedding of blood. And so Jesus comes as fully God and fully man. He goes in our place. His blood is shed for us. And so Hebrews chapter 12, in talking about that, we had that read earlier in the service. It talks about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember from Genesis, what did, what did the blood of Abel speak? What did it declare? The need for vengeance. The, the injustice that he was killed by his brother who should have been the one in all the world most protecting his life. Who murdered him instead. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. Jesus goes to the cross and his blood speaks a better word. What is it that Jesus' word speaks? What is it that Jesus' blood speaks? It speaks to the Father of mercy. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Justice has already been satisfied in the death of Jesus as our high priest. And so his blood now washes us of all guilt. But he also sets us free. We are no longer confined to a city of refuge. We're no longer hemmed in. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer prisoners. We've been set free. I don't know where each of you are coming from this morning. And remember, Cain and Abel both were worshiping God. So you may have been here worshiping God, or at least having the, the appearance of that, for decades. And have your heart as far from God as Cain's was. And there's only one solution. Jesus and his blood shed for us. And what that means is coming before the Lord and asking him for what he's already given you. To receive him as Savior. And then to follow him as Lord. You might just, in the quiet of your own heart and mind right now, simply say to God, God, I confess I don't love others the way that I'm supposed to. I don't keep your law. But in your word, you say that Jesus has kept it for me and died for the sin for which I deserve death. Would you forgive me? And then follow him. Obey him by faith. You say, Pastor, I've done that. I may have done that a dozen times through the years. Not sure if the first one took. You don't get closer by obeying better. You get closer by trusting Christ for what he's done. That when he died and said it is finished, it's done. 
So why are you living in a way as if you're constrained like those living in a city of refuge? Walk out in the freedom of Christ to love your neighbor, to care for them, and tell them about Christ. How do we keep God's command? We love because he first loved us. We do what God requires. We refrain from what God forbids by faith. There's more that I could say. Let me just encourage you to use the Taken Gathered Worship Home, particularly this week. I have you looking at Matthew chapter 5 and 18. When you're struggling with a neighbor that you're at cross purposes about, and you say, which one of us is supposed to take the first move? We just, you know, do a, do a reveal here. You are. Chapter 5 says, if you're in the wrong, you go. Chapter 18 says, if they're in the wrong, you go. There's none of this. Well, if they come and, and ask for forgiveness, then I'll give it to them. Because if Jesus is treated that way, we would never be forgiven. He came to us. He died for us. He forgave us before we asked for it. So you too, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving and sustaining human life. Lord, we wouldn't have it without you. And yet we live our lives so much in total disdain for what you have commanded us to do. And so we pray that you would forgive us, that you would change us and transform us and more and more allow us as a congregation